0: Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets
1: people.
2: AI is a subject that we all think we know something about because of all the sci-fi books we've read and the movies we've seen, most of which are pretty scary. But the reality is more complicated. Because of faster machines, affordable neural networks, and cloud-based technologies, the last 10 years has seen a huge spike in AI. It's used in almost 80% of the devices we use every day, and in many of our companies, factories, schools, hospitals, transportation systems, judicial and criminal justice systems, and banking systems. I'm Chris Mooney, and I'm at the OECD today to talk about artificial intelligence because of two events happening here right now. First, the OECD's big conference on AI and work, innovation, productivity, and skills. And second, the launch of the OECD's AI classification framework, which classifies AI systems and applications and assesses their impact on human rights, privacy, well-being, the environment, democracy, health, and job quality. AI brings many benefits, but it can also reinforce racial and gender bias and can be used for misinformation and propaganda, identity theft, surveillance, spyware, automated weaponry, and a host of other high risks. What steps need to be taken to keep these potential risks in check? To help us answer this, I'm talking today to two experts in the field of AI. So my first guest is Corrine Persett, who heads the AI unit of the OECD division for digital economy policy. Karine is in charge of the OECD AI policy observatory and the OECD AI network of experts. Hi Karine. welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thank you for your kind invitation. Nice to be here.
2: So I'd like to sort of address the elephant in the room, which is what exactly is AI? Many people make a distinction between it and machine learning and deep learning, and others say that it is whatever hasn't yet been done by a machine, meaning that once a machine, for example, beats a chess grandmaster or recognizes my face or translates what I'm saying or pays my bills or drives my car or diagnoses my illnesses or suggests a song that I will like or calls my friend, it's no longer intelligence, it's just computation. How do you and the OECD define artificial intelligence?
0: So defining AI is a very difficult endeavor and one that many groups have struggled with you know for the past 50 60 years 70 years even the definition of an AI system according to the OECD and this is included in the OECD AI principles of 2019 which are a legal instrument are that an AI system is a machine-based system that is capable of influencing the environment by producing an output that can take the form of recommendations, predictions, or decisions, for example, for a given set of objectives. Um, so that's the core definition, and it is very broad, and the goal for having such a broad definition is to make sure that it is future-proof, because as we've been saying, AI is evolving so quickly and encompassing you know, new capabilities all the time. And so we've broken this down into sort of an AI system will use machine and or human-based inputs or data to perceive its environment, to abstract what it perceives into models, and then use those models to formulate options for outcomes. And then those outcomes in turn will have an impact back on the environment. So that is the OECD definition of an AI system. And I think what is really important about it is that it is not limited to machine learning. Machine learning is part of AI. It is the part of artificial intelligence that has been making huge progress over the past years, but it is not necessarily going to be the only part of artificial intelligence that's really critical to our future. And in particular, we have new forms of systems that will combine machine learning systems with symbolic AI systems, which are sort of rules based based on expert knowledge. And that's how many feel that we'll be able to reach the next step of artificial intelligence, where artificial intelligence systems or machine learning systems are not just replicating what has happened in the past, but are able to simulate new outcomes and anticipate future possibilities, even those things have never occurred in the past. And a good example of this is the pandemic, is the recent pandemic. No AI models could have predicted that uh, because it hasn't happened in the past for which we have data. And so that's why combining different types of AI is viewed by many as the future. And that's also why our definition is broad.
2: Right. And with those new AI systems and those new forms of hybrids come new levels of, of autonomy for those systems as well which bring in a whole new set of potential risks that I think is part of the reason why the OECD has put together this classification framework. How long have you been working on it?
0: We've been working on the framework for a while with a really top-notch and committed group of AI experts from all over the world, from Brazil to New Zealand, Japan, the US, and all around Europe, of course, as well as countries like Turkey and Russia. And representing all kinds of stakeholder groups, um, including academia, AI standards bodies, uh, again, from many regions, technical research organizations, businesses, as well as governments. So we've been trying to achieve a balance between a framework that is technically robust, but that is user-friendly enough to be able to help policymakers differentiate between many different types of applied AI systems.
2: Right. So why do we need this classification framework?
0: The reason we need this classification framework is that we do have a tendency still to talk about AI writ large, but AI technologies are changing everything about how people learn, how they work, play, interact, and how they live. In many cases, making our lives easier, more secure, or or even more exciting. Uh, But at the same time, as AI spreads across all sectors, these different types of AI systems deliver different benefits, but also raise risks in areas like human rights and personal privacy.
2: Right. So the framework itself will be evolving in ways that we're not even sure of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We think that the core characteristics, so let's say the dimensions of the framework are not going to evolve, but of course the components inside will evolve as new technologies come up, as you know, new types of optimization appear.
2: Okay. So the framework describes five dimensions, uh, and then it applies a number of questions to these, which you describe as core criteria. Mm-hmm. Describe, if you could, the structure of the framework.
0: So in the center of the framework, we have the people and planet, which is a cross-dimensional element that overlaps with all the other dimension and that identifies the individuals and groups that interact with or that are affected by an AI application in a specific context.
2: Right. So these are the users and and the people that are impacted by its use.
0: Exactly. The users and the stakeholders. Uh, The second dimension, which... It is the economic context in which the system lives, and this includes the sector, whether it's healthcare, the impact of the system, and the scale of the system. The third dimension is the data and input that flow from the context, the economic context, the context in which the AI system operates, to the AI model and system itself, And the fourth dimension is the AI model itself, which is a representation of this context or environment and the technologies that are used in the model, including the type of model and the model building process. And the last dimension is the task and output that flow back from the AI model into the context or the context or the environment, and that are going to influence that context or environment by you know action, information, and so on and so forth.
2: So this task and output dimension is how does the system act then with the information that it's acquired?
0: Exactly to
2: recognize my face or whatever it is
0: exactly so so that the task and output dimension refers to the tasks that the system performs, like is it personalizing? content or recommendations? Is it recognizing objects or faces? Is it forecasting future events? Is it using goal-driven optimization, etc.? And so this task and output dimension is really important for public policy because if you think about personalization tasks, for example, they generate outputs that could raise bias and fairness issues. If you think about recognition tasks, Those can raise concerns of human rights, robustness and security, but also bias.
2: So how then will the framework be used by policymakers?
0: Um, So the framework allows users, so policymakers, but any other users, to zoom in on specific risks that are typical of AI, like bias, explainability and robustness. But it's also generic in nature. And so it can help policymakers develop policies and regulations because the characteristics of AI systems are going to influence the measures, technical and procedural, they need to implement these policies or regulations. The, the classification framework is already being used for one such standard in the United Kingdom. We have a few other uh, cases where the framework's being been tested for specific registries of AI systems. So, for example, for registries for AI systems being used during the pandemic,
2: so the OECD is working, in a sense, hand in hand with other organizations and institutions?
0: Yes, exactly. So, for example, the UK Medicines and Healthcare Product Regulatory Agency and the UK National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, uh, of which the acronym is NICE, um, has a health technology assessment program that is using and adapting the classification framework for AI systems to help them triage technologies for health technology assessment.
2: And this is not at the corporate level, this is the institution level. This is for policymakers at the government level.
0: This is, but it but it directly involves corporations because many of these requirements in some cases, some will be mandated, some will be voluntary. In the US, for example, the framework will be voluntary, but there will be strong, you know, nudging. And really the idea is is that uh, many of the companies operating in this space are operating across borders and therefore having to comply with many different frameworks.
2: So what's the next step? Now that the framework is in place, what happens next?
0: So the classification framework that we've just been discussing um, describes key aspects of an applied AI systems, uh, including the various contexts in which it'll impact the real world, the nature and type of data and input, the various AI models and the types of tasks it executes and the outputs it produces. And then the information derived from this framework for a specific use case augmented with information on governance and risk mitigation processes can help to assess the risks of an applied AI system.
2: And how are members of the public consulted? How did they participate?
0: So we conducted a public consultation last summer, which generated over 850 contributions from all kinds of institutions and experts and non-experts about the classification. And based on all that feedback, we readjusted uh, the framework, adapted it considerably, took into account all of that, those all that input, and uh, and that's the the new framework.
2: You've been working on this for two years now, is that correct?
0: Something like that, yep.
2: (laughs) Yep. Where do you expect to be in a year, if that's a fair question?
0: Um, In a year, there are two key components we hope to have significantly progressed on. One is developing a common framework for reporting AI incidents, especially those that are negative or harmful. And the second key project is and it's directly related is really using the framework as the baseline to build a risk assessment framework that would have considerable practical use for stakeholders in numerous contexts.
2: So, okay, Karine, that was a lot to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good luck with the next two years.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
2: My second guest is Dr. Sebastian Hallenslieben, who co-chairs the Classification and Risk Assessment Working Group in OECD1.ai. Hi, Sebastian. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Chris. I'm very pleased to be there.
2: So I'm very eager to talk with you about bots and fakes and on generative AI and AI-fabricated content in general, and how these recent and imminent technologies impact democracy and business and privacy and trust. But... First of all, I'd like you to tell me about the OECD's new AI classification framework, which tracks and assesses these and other risks across the full spectrum of AI, and your
1: involvement with it, and why we need it. What sort of risks are are we talking about? Well, the conventional risks could be, for example, risk to health, to physical safety. If you think of a robot, if you think of an autonomous vehicle, if you think of uh, medical applications of AI. There are also uh, risks in the area of security, IT security, But those are fields or types of risks that exist for other technologies as well. But there are also additional new risks that are more along the societal dimension. So a risk of being treated unfairly, a risk of AI taking a decision that maybe cannot be explained or cannot be questioned, a risk of bias, a risk of not being heard. We have inclusiveness issues and so on. This dimension of risk, societal risk, uh, risk to fundamental rights, that's not been in focus in the same way for previous technology as it is now for AI. You've been working on
2: the creation of standards and regulations for a number of different institutions, including the German parliament and the EU. How do all these various regulation and standardization efforts interplay?
1: And are we making progress That's a very, very good question. We have competing objectives here or or competing approaches. And I think the competition in this case is a good thing, but it has to be managed. So many countries have got their own AI roadmaps and their own discussions around uh, regulation of AI. Europe obviously has the uh, AI Act that is being developed at the moment and will come into force in in, uh, a few years. And uh, at the international level, there are also various initiatives to establish certain principles of how to use AI, maybe not all of them binding, because that's uh, more difficult at the international level, but at least as a guideline for national activities. But then the question is, how can you standardize it? How can you bring it together so that if you sell an AI product across the world, you don't have uh, 200 different jurisdictions to consider? You use the term AI ethics. What, what exactly do you mean by that? I think the best way of defining it is to say it's, it's a set of certain concerns that uh, we want to see in the use of AI and that we want to see be supported by AI products. So, for example, transparency, um, explainability, accountability, fairness slash non-discrimination. Some people also include sustainability, and again, if you talk about how to put transparency into practice or how to put explainability into practice, the OECD classification framework is a big help because it establishes a, a reference framework, a, a structure to talk about, okay, transparency. So is this on the user side, is this on the system side? Which applications are we talking about? So it really helps to structure those those discussions.
2: Right. And and that becomes particularly difficult with regards to proprietary software or sort of black box AI, where we don't know how to interpret it because we don't have all of the data that was required. How can we regulate that? Or is is that possible?
1: Well, we've got several kinds of black box here. The first one that you alluded to is obviously the commercial black box, where for commercial reasons, companies prefer to keep certain things proprietary and undisclosed. But the second type of black box is a more fundamental black box, in the sense that the most common type of AI at the moment, i.e. neural networks, are a black box. Well, not by definition, but by their very nature, uh, we have no way in principle right now of uh, cracking open those black boxes and understand why a neural network behaves in a certain way and not in another way. And that has consequences, for example, for safety critical applications, but also for uh, applications where fundamental rights might be affected. On the commercial side, I think the trade offs are not so dissimilar from trade offs in other technologies. If companies need to prove adherence to certain regulations, so for example, to non discrimination, they have to divulge. Um, certain information, even if it's proprietary information. It doesn't necessarily need to be divulged to the general public, but maybe it might be divulged to a regulator, or maybe if there is an accident, proprietary information might be divulged to authorities investigating the accident. So that's a trade-off, and a kind of a give and take what is being divulged when, that of course needs to happen for AI, but is not fundamentally new. But the other black box nature that I mentioned, the kind of more fundamental black box nature, is a bit more difficult to handle because in those cases, a company might simply not be able to divulge, well, why has a certain application made a decision to recruit person X over person Y right. or to allocate funds to Project X or, or Project Y? And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, do we do we just accept the limitation of the technology? And we say, well, if the company can't divulge it in principle, then well, they don't, obviously we can't force them to, or are we taking the opposite approach and are saying, well, it's crucial that the information is there. And if an organization is unable to divulge it, then maybe the technology can't be used in that particular arena.
2: What is meant exactly here by generative
1: and and why is it particularly high risk? Okay, generative uh, AI means that AI creates, that it generates something. It could be a face, it could be uh, text, it could be one side of a conversation, it could be an article, it could be a video clip, it could be pretty much any media that you might want to imagine. And the way that generative AI works is that you give it examples of what you Wanted to generate. So, if you want it to generate faces of people that don't exist, you just provide millions of existing faces. But the upshot is that generative AI can create a face from lots of samples of real faces. In the same way, if you feed GPT X examples of uh, blog posts or newspaper articles or uh, forum posts, at some point the quantity becomes sufficient for GPT. Free or GPT X to generate its own texts of a similar nature. And the technology is new. Not everything that is being generated uh, makes sense. But a lot of the articles, in particular, if you generate shorter texts, it's grammatically well formed. Um, the content makes sense, some sort of a storyline to it. And it's certainly good enough to resemble something that a real person might write, in particular, if it's not kind of crafted perfectly.
2: And these are becoming broadly available and affordable.
1: Yes, these are broadly available. So we're really entering an era, and this is where the challenge or the danger comes, where almost anyone, certainly anyone with a little bit of time and motivation on their hand can generate pretty much any content. So any video that you imagine, there are lots of deep fake examples on YouTube out there where kind of celebrities are, are shown to do certain things or to say certain things like in the reality if they've never said. So it's a whole explosion of opportunity that's coming out there. And uh, some of those are good, have uh, value, and others are dangerous.
2: And how can we counter those dangers then? Are there detection tools available already or are they being developed? Um, I
1: think that is a very, very fundamental point. So if we imagine a world where we cannot know whether a person we're interacting with in the digital world is a real person or not. That is a fundamental problem because it means we can't trust what we see. And we start then asking the question that that you just asked, well, aren't there just tools that can tell me whether this person is real or whether this content is real or whether this video is real? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, there are tools out there, Um, There are also fact-checking organizations out there, but they have two limitations. One is the sheer scale. If I can automatically fabricate content, then a fact-checking agency that is ultimately relying on human skill and labor just can't keep up with the volume. And the second more fundamental issue is if I can build a detection tool that reliably identifies fabricated or fake content, Well, I can use that detection tool to train my fabrication tools to -hmm. become better until they evade the detection tool. So it's an arms race. Right. So
2: are you optimistic? Is it winnable? Can we keep pace with the technology?
1: I would draw an analogy to a much more longstanding problem, environmental pollution. We slowly, gradually built a worldwide consensus that... It's not a good idea for humankind to make our physical world unlivable by polluting the environment too too much. And that led to, for example, curbs to uh, air pollution, it led to the international agreement to protect the ozone layer and so on. In the same way, we need to talk about how do we make sure that the digital space remains livable? So drawing that analogy, I'm fundamentally hopeful. But it's not going to be an easy path,
2: right? Again, that's that question of transparency. We developed the tools to see what was happening to the ozone layer, for example. So we need to build those tools to perceive what's happening
1: in the world of deep fakes, etc. That is actually a very good analogy. I mean, the ozone layer came to public consciousness with the first satellite images or or kind of satellite recordings of the uh, big hole um, in the South Pole. And uh, it's actually a very interesting thought. Well, what's the satellite for the digital space right. that gives us a very convincing uh, picture of what's going on and spurs us into action?
2: Well, thank you, Sebastian, for uh, being a part of the podcast. Have a good day.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm looking to be in touch.
2: To learn more about the AI OECD Policy Observatory, go to www.oecd.ai.
0: To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.